Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Michigan to discuss bias in pulse oximetry. My name is Michael Schoding. I'm an associate professor in pulmonary critical care at the University of Michigan. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Michael. Today we'll be discussing your article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. Um, it was entitled Racial Bias in Pulse Oximetry Measurement. So maybe before we get into the study details, you can just share with us um, why do we perform pulse oximetry um, and why do we do that instead of performing arterial blood oxygen saturation? Yeah, so, you know, as probably many listeners know, uh, the pulse oximeter is this remarkable device because it can non-invasively measure the saturation of oxygen in the blood, and that's a, an important indicator of health. And so, you know, in a normal healthy person, we expect an oxygen level in the blood to be in a normal range, like above 95%. And then patients with severe lung diseases uh, can basically not take in enough oxygen, and so oxygen in their blood gets low, and that can be, you know, very dangerous. And so measuring uh, our oxygen level by the pulse oximeter allows us to sort of understand what's going on with a, with someone to, to understand whether they're ill with a, a serious lung or a heart disease. And so the way that we used to do this years ago is we used to draw a sample of blood from an artery, mostly in the wrist, uh, and then take that sample to the lab and directly measure the oxygen saturation. It's a bit invasive to draw blood from an artery. It's a bit time-consuming. Uh, and so in, in most situations, instead of doing that, we have a finger probe that can um, measure the oxygen instead. And, and it's an, an, a non-invasive alternative to the arterial blood gas. So this technology started being used in anesthesia suites and in the ICU, but it seems to have become ubiquitous in the hospital. And in some circumstances, and especially during COVID, uh, we started it being widely used, seen it being widely used uh, in patients, uh, outpatients and at home. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think like in general, the use, the, the, the use of pulse oximeters uh, and <clears throat> the widespread of use of pulse oximeters is probably a good thing. Um, you know, it's a non-invasive device. Uh, it's fairly easy to use. Um, it's not ex extraordinarily expensive. And so the use of this device can um, allow us to potentially sort of identify patients who are sick with severe lung disease, you know, easily and quickly and appropriately sort of get them to the right place, whether if they're at home and they have a low oxygen level on the pulse oximeter, they can call their physician or go to the emergency department. Or, you know, if they show up in the hospital and they have low oxygen, it sort of enables people to sort of identify sick patients and treat them earlier. So that's the good about pulse oximeters. The problem, and we'll get to this in the study, is that uh, no device is perfect. And we kind of became probably more reliant on the pulse oximeter than we should be. 
Uh, and we sort of forgot some of the limitations of the device over the years, um, which potentially put uh, certain patients at risk. And I'm sort of setting the study up by saying that, so I won't say any more until we talk specifically about the study. Perfect. So let's uh, jump into your study. Um, this was a correspondence letter to the NEJM. Um, why did you perform the study and what were your study aims? Yeah, so this study really came out of the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, several years ago now, thank goodness, but at the very beginning of the pandemic, we really experienced this ma massive surge of patients with very serious lung diseases from COVID. Uh, who were hospitalized and in the ICU on mechanical ventilation, and, and they were very sick. And I was a pulmonary critical care physician taking care of those patients at the beginning of the pandemic. And I was at Michigan Hospital in University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And it just so happened that uh, the De greater Detroit area was one of the areas of the country that was hit particularly hard in this first wave. And the community around De Detroit is, uh, is a higher minority community than, you know, what we would typically see in Ann Arbor. And we took care of a lot of those patients at the beginning of COVID-19. So we were seeing a lot of patients who described themselves as Black. And when we were caring for them, we noticed this odd situation, which was we would have a pulse oximeter measurement that was normal. And then, you know, as part of their care, we would occasionally get an arterial blood gas um, to, you know, titrate oxygen or or change their in, in, uh, the invasive mechanical ventilation setting. And when we got that arterial blood gas um, and compared it to the pulse oximeter, we noticed there was like a small but noticeable discrepancy. The pulse oximeter was reading normally the saturation on the arterial blood gas was low. And we didn't really know what was going on. And, and honestly, we didn't immediately appreciate that maybe this could be a difference uh, in a patient's self-reported race or and or due to their skin tone. Honestly, at the beginning of COVID, we wondered if it was a phenomenon with COVID. Uh, but it just so happened that around the same time, there was a woman who was a sociologist who was also really interested in pulse oximeters and dug into some of the history of the pulse oximeter and some of the older studies describing some of the inaccuracies of the pulse oximeter, particularly inaccuracies among patients who describe themselves as black or with higher melanin content in their skin. And she published this piece in the Boston Review, which we read, and after we read this, we realized, and, and this woman, by the way, was named Amy Moran Thompson. She's a, a, a soci sociologist, or excuse me, an anthropologist at MIT. And we read this article by her and we said, oh my gosh, what she's just describing is what we were seeing in, in, in our experience when we were caring, caring for uh, black patients with COVID-19. We were seeing that a pulse oximeter was reading normally but the arterial blood gas is reading low. And so that really motivated us to do the study to actually bring some empirical data to this experience that we had and to really understand whether these devices, which in the past had been described as having less accuracy in certain populations, self-reported black with, with higher melanin content, was still present. 
And so that's the reason why we um, did the study. And you know, we, when, when doing this study, we asked this really specific question, which was, well, how often is the pulse oximeter reading normally? But in fact, when we draw an arterial blood gas, is it low? And how often is that occurring in people that describe themselves as white? And how often is that occurring in people that describe themselves as black? And is there a difference? And so that was the main objective of this, this study is to sort of understand how often that occurs. The pulse oximeter is reading normally, but when we draw the arterial blood gas, it's low. Well, that's pretty important because um, we we were stressed to the limits. There are a lot of patients that uh, were told, uh, you know, your oxygen levels look good, you can go home, but please monitor your oxygen levels. And if it looks good, then you're fine. If it looks bad, then come in and see us. So this is important because a number of patients may have been falsely reassured by a normal number on the pulse oximeter when in actual fact the arterial uh, blood oxygen saturation was low. So let's get into your study methods. How did you design the study? Um, and what limitations did you note of previous studies or previous reports? Yeah, so we collected, or not collected, but we used the data that had been routinely collected as part of routine care and basically placed in all our electronic health record to do the study. So we analyzed patients uh, admitted in the first half of 2020, uh, who received supplemental oxygen and then happened over the course of their care to get a pulse oximeter reading followed by an arterial blood gas. And, you know, because now we have electronic health records where with all this data saved, it allowed us to analyze like a good number of patients, um, you know, orders of magnitude more patients in our study compared to prior studies of pulse oximeters. So, you know, in prior studies of pulse oximeters, what ends up happening is patients or study subjects are brought into a lab setting. They are, uh, pulse oximeters placed on them, ABGs are drawn and pulse oximeter readings are performed. And those studies, you know, maybe have 25, 50, 100 patients tops. So it's a really small sample. Um, whereas, you know, our study, because we were using the electronic health record data, it had significantly larger numbers of patients. So that allowed us to sort of be more, better powered to measure, you know, small differences in pulse oximetry accuracy that were still quite meaningful clinically. Uh, so when we collected that electronic health record data, we asked the question, you know, during the course of care, was there a pulse oximeter measurement made followed by an arterial blood gas measurement? And then how often were those two very discrepant? And so we defined this discrepancy as the pulse oximeter was reading in this normal range of saturation of 92 to 96%, whereas the actual arterial blood gas was less than 88%. And we decided to sort of really focus on that range because, you know, when I'm caring for a patient in the hospital, my goal is to keep the saturation in the 92 to 96% range, not too low, not too high, sort of just right. But if I would have been paying attention, I would have had the arterial blood gas measurement available to me and it was low, less than 88%. And I knew that 
I would change how I care for this patient. And so like, how often is care potentially changing when you actually have, or should care be changing when we potentially have that arterial glass that's showing a, a low number? And so, you know, what do we find? So when we looked at that in white patients, it was pretty rare. It's pretty rare that, uh, you know, the oxygen saturation by the pulse ox was 92 to 96%, but the blood oxygen on the arterial blood gas was less than 88, occurred about 3% of the time. Whereas in self, patients self-reported as black, uh, you know, the pulse ox was 92 to 96%, but the actual arterial blood gas was less than eight, more like 11% of the time. Um, uh, so, you know, that is a significantly higher amount of time where you're getting this false reassurance that the pulse oximeter is normal, but in fact, the blood oxygen is really low or l not really low, but low enough to sort of change how care is performed. And then you'll look at a separate group of patients as well. Uh, maybe you could comment on those patients as well. Yeah, the group, uh, that's yeah. right. So we started with our University of Michigan data uh, because that's what we had access to. And that data was from uh, 2020. Uh, but then there happened to be this other data set that's available that as a researcher, I had access to. Uh, it's called the EICU data set. Uh, it's, uh, it's a group of patients from, I think, over 100 hospitals. Uh, and that data, that sort of the same type of electronic health record data was collected. And I think these patients are uh, patients hospitalized in 2014 and 2015. And so we basically performed the same analysis in those patients. We found patients from that data set who happened to have as part of their care, both a pulse oximeter measurement followed by an arterial blood gas measurement, and then sort of measured how often was the pulse oximeter reading normally, but the arterial blood gas was low. And we essentially found that same pattern where in white patients, um, sort of that discrepancy, which we called a cold hypoxemia, where the pulse oximeter was normal, but the but the blood oxygen in the arterial blood gas was low. That occurred pretty infrequently in white patients, but nearly three times as often in black patients. And so that was really an important sort of confirmatory analysis. You know, there was a few things that we sort of wondered. Is, is this effect that we're seeing about the pulse oximeter sort of unique to our uh, hospital system uh, or unique to the sort of the weird things that were happening at the beginning of COVID? No, it was not because when we sort of look for the same finding in this other sample of patients from all sorts of hospitals from a different time period, uh, we found the same primary finding. Yeah, those findings were striking. So just to summarize there, in the first group, it was 3% in those who reported themselves as white and 11% in those who reported themselves as black, so a three- to four-fold increase. And then in the other group, it was 6% of those who reported themselves as white and 17% in those who reported themselves as black. And it would appear that there's two really important findings that you noted. One, that there was this marked discrepancy, um, a three- to four-fold higher increase. But what is also rather alarming is the fact that, um, you know, 6% uh, of, of folks uh, who report themselves as white also had this issue. And when you go ahead and do the math um, in terms of population, 
Um, if one assumes that uh, 4 million people were at high risk of hospitalization or were hospitalized with COVID, and one extrapolates the numbers, it sounds like 200,000 to 280,000 people, a quarter of a million people, may have been adversely affected by this. Um, so maybe you could comment on those two issues, the fact that there was this difference um, amongst those who reported themselves as white versus black, and then secondly, uh, the bigger picture where we have a quarter of a million uh, folks in the United States uh, who were being falsely reassured uh, by this result. Yeah, thank you. I think that's exactly right. Um, so with regard to the first issue, that sort of this discrepancy was more common in, in black patients. So, um, you know, people may know or may not know that the pulse oximeter is um, works by shining wavelengths of light through uh, the fingertip. And, and based on how much uh, light is transmitted versus absorbed, uh, the pulse oximeter can sort of estimate what the oxygen saturation is in the blood. And that's because these wavelengths that are traveling through the finger, uh, they get uh, absorbed or transmitted differently based on the blood oxygen content. And so the pulse oximeter is smart enough to sort of, sort of use that uh, amount of light that's sort of getting transmitted through to sort of do an estimation of, of blood oxygen. The problem is that like, you know, these devices, while spectacular in some respects, are imperfect in how much oxygen... Uh, it, that's in the blood, it depends on a, it, so the, the, the amount of light that travels through the finger, uh, sort of depends on other factors too. And so one of those factors is potentially, you know, your thickness of your skin, uh, the color of the skin, uh, whether or not, uh, you have good circulation to your finger. So there's lots of other factors. And one of those factors is probably, related to the, the skin pigment level or the melanin level in, in the finger. And so, you know, if, if you're shining light, if the pulse oximeter is shining light through the finger and some of that is sort of getting scattered or absorbed, absorbed by melanin, and it's going to sort of change uh, how much light is, is transmitted through and sort of as an effect, pulse oximeter sort of may misestimate um, what the oxygen content is in the blood. And so that's really what's happening. And so, um, you know, this actually was something that was known and had been described previously in, in studies as, as far back as the 1990s. But I think to sort of give prior investigators the benefit of the doubt, those studies were different. They were in these lab settings. They were, um, it was a smaller sample. And the, and the studies weren't really sort of as well positioned to sort of recognize the important clinical implications of these differences. And a lot of the studies, uh, the main interpretation wa was, well, there might be a little difference here between how the pulse oximeter performs in white person, white, white people relative to black people, but you know, it's small, it probably doesn't matter. Uh, but in our study, again, you know, sort of because of the data we had access to, we were able to answer this question differently and really uncover that, yes, you know, the, this, the saturation, uh, the, there is this, this difference that's probably quite clinically significant. So that's the sort of the first part of the, the question. The second part or the second point is that, yeah. So the pulse oximeter, while this incredible instrument is not perfect. And when the pulse oximeter was introduced 
uh, to clinical medicine, I think, you know, starting in the early 1980s, I think people were sort of aware that this pulse oximeter device isn't going to give you a perfectly accurate reading. It's going to have some sort of error in its measurement. So, you know, you should use the device in the context of other information that you have about the patient. And whenever you have a, like a level of uncertainty about what's going on with the patient, and you really want to know what their oxygen level is in the blood, you should measure an arterial blood gas to get the real gold standard accurate reading. And so I think, you know, in the 1980s, when, when the pulse oximeters really came to the market, I think people were really aware of this. But over time, because pulse oximeters are so ubiquitous and so easy to use, people sort of forgot that like this measurement isn't always completely accurate. And we uh, became more and more reliant on the pulse oximeter device, despite the fact that it's not perfect. And that was particularly evident at the beginning of COVID when we were really using the pulse oximeters a lot for triaging patients. If the pulse oximeter was reading normally, the patient's fine, doesn't need to be in the hospital. If the pulse oximeter is reading low, the patient is seriously ill, probably needs additional care. And so we were sort of using that pulse oximeter without sort of thinking about the entire clinical picture. And, you know, I think I myself, as a pulmonary physician who uses a pulse oximeter all the time, also underappreciated that, you know, this is a device that, while powerful, is imperfect. And so I think, you know, among the things that have happened since the publication of our paper is, is a greater recognition, again, that you know, pulse oximeter is a device that has uh, a, a lot, can can be used to really help guide patient care, but it, it has limitations. So we can't use that alone. We have to use it in the context of other information that we have about patients. Yeah, so this brings up a couple of interesting uh, points. Uh, the one is that there's been a big move over the last decade or so to move to less invasive uh, techniques of monitoring patients um, and it seems as though we've forgotten the importance of actually calibrating our instruments if we do that. Um, I know there was at one time a push to get rid of all A-lines, get rid of all um, uh, devices that monitor, and then we've kind of slowly gone back to realizing that sometimes it's better to have an A-line in or to do an ABG to get an accurate um, reading. So I'd like you to comment on that. And then the second is, and I think you alluded to this, it, it looks like very small differences in percentages, you know, a 2%, 3%, 4% difference. But when you magnify that at a population level, especially when you have a disease such as COVID, which um, basically affected millions of people, those so-called small percentages end up being uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients. Um, so maybe comment on those two for us. Yeah. So for sure, the, for your first point is exactly right. Um, we we there has been a push in medicine sort of less is more try to be non non-invasive as possible and we've sort of the pulse oximeter has become this instrument that allows us to do that but i do think the pe pendulum went a little bit too far in that we sort of forgot that this device uh is imperfect and so i think you know physicians just have to sort of put on their thinking caps and use their clinical judgment a little bit more often uh, when it comes to sort of using that device and interpreting it in the context of the patient. For really sick patients where you really need to know the answer, like 
getting a pulse oximeter reading is not enough. Um, uh, in my own clinic, um, you know, I've, I've started performing ar- arterial blood gases a little bit more frequently, just in those patients where I feel like I really need to know, or in the hospital, I've paid, I've just, you, you know, just put a little less weight on the pulse oximeter when, when making a clinical decision and am slightly more, um, uh, I, I'm just, just choosing to sort of perform an arterial blood gas a little bit more. And so I think there is this balance, uh, when it comes to sort of invasive testing, uh, versus non-invasive testing. And I think with regard to using the pulse oximeter versus the arterial blood gas, we went a little too far, uh, and we need to find this sort of this new medium or, you know, we need, we need better devices that are more accurate and we don't quite have that yet. So in the, in the meantime, we just have to sort of use the pulse oximeter, but sort of recognize its limitations. Other strategies are, you know, perhaps, um, you know, setting your threshold a little higher. You know, if you set your threshold, uh, setting a pulse oximeter reading at 95, you know, then it's probably pretty un- unlikely that like if the satur- if the pulse oximeter saturated is 90- 95 or higher, uh, you know, it's probably unlikely that it's in the unsafe range. So there's a, there's a variety of strategies that can be used to sort of compensate for the fact that this device is, is less accurate. The other thing that you said is exactly right. And again, that's sort of the reason why our study was so powerful is that it, it allowed us to detect um, differences in readings that sound a little small, but on a population level uh, are really large, you know, in terms of sort of, the amount of people that could potentially be affected. Uh, you know, if you think about medical devices in use today, outside of the blood pressure cuff, a pulse oximeter is probably the most frequently used device in the hospital or clinic. So we're using this device all the time on patients all over the world. And so, uh, you know, in a device that sort of gets it wrong, you know, on the order of three to 6% of the time, like that's still over the course of all the readings taken, a large amount of patients where these readings are inaccurate. And so, you know, when we have a device that's used so frequently, it's it's critical either to have a device that we know is extremely accurate because it's being used all the time or and or um, a device that we sort of appreciate as being imperfect and we sort of don't allow us to make the error of, well, device is reading normally, this patient must be fine. And we don't pay attention to sort of the other things that might indicate that, uh, that that assessment might be incorrect. So let's jump into your limitations here. Um, what were the limitations of the study? Um, I think you'll do report that you didn't have the opportunity to actually um, measure skin thickness, which you, men- which you mentioned, uh, to determine uh, peripheral perfusion, which could affect uh, readings, um, and, to, uh, and you relied on self-reported uh, race. Uh, how would these um, factors uh, cause any limitations in your study or any other limitations that we should be aware of? Yes, for sure. So, you know, in contrast to these laboratory settings where pulse oximeter devices have been tested before, we we sort of analyzed the data from the real world. So we were sort of limited by the accuracy of the data recorded as part of real world practice. So number one, uh, we relied on data where pulse oximeter 
recordings were performed and then an ABG was followed after. Uh, that ABG might not have been drawn immediately after that pulse oximeter re was recording. Um, around it happened around four minutes later on average. So you can imagine, you know, you, you, you do, you measure, uh, the saturation with the pulse oximeter. You draw the ABG four minutes later. There could be a little bit of drift in the reading between that time. So that could introduce some noise. Uh, so, that noise could sort of make the pulse oximeter seem a little less accurate than it truly is. That noise would have essentially affected black and white people in the same way, such that that noise wouldn't have explained any differences between black and white people. So that's one limitation. And that's a limitation that like lots of people sort of took issue with because a lot of people were sort of used to these testing of pulse oximeter in these very controlled settings. And so, you know, that is a limitation. The other limitation, as you mentioned, was, you know, in large data sets, we don't have, like, an accurate measure of uh, skin pigment level. Uh, and presumably the mechanism where the pulse oximeter is less accurate uh, is via skin pigment. And um, you would expect then with the people with the highest melanin content, uh, to have the pulse oximeter readings um, that were the sort of the most inaccurate. You know, self-reported race is, is, is a proxy for, you know, someone's skin tone. Race in general is a social, not biological construct. So, uh, you know, there isn't like necessarily meaningful uh, biological differences in people across racial groups. However, uh, you know, there is a, a pretty good correlation between how you report yourself uh, racially and, and, and what your skin pigment level is. However, within groups of people, right, within people who describe themselves as black, there's a variety of skin tones. Within people who describe themselves as white, there's a variety of skin tones. So that, again, that self-report introduces noise uh, into the analysis. And so if we would have, if we would had a cleaner measure of, of you know, patient's skin pigment level, uh, we would have had a cleaner analysis to really uh, confirm that the hypothesized mechanism of this difference is through skin pigment. Another thing that, you know, people have asked about is, well, what about other groups? Like, what about Southeast Asians or, or other groups that have sort of intermediate or dark skin pigment? Hispanics, for example. And, and presumably, uh, you know, those patients also would have sort of higher levels of inaccuracy of the pulse oximeter. We didn't study that in this, in this analysis, but there has been other studies that have come up after ours that have sort of found that or suggested that. Yeah, I mean, so regardless, I, um, yeah. there seems to be a big discrepancy um, in the numbers here. I mean, when you go from 3% to 11% being falsely reassuring, and then another group 6% versus 17% uh, falsely reassuring, there is an issue there that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. So maybe we could turn, uh, we, we, we can turn tack there. Um, what does the study imply and what are the, the next steps? I mean, obviously, uh, our population needs to be educated on how these pulse oximeters work, but there seems to be further education that's needed of uh, the, the healthcare field and then feedback to industry. Yeah. Uh, th thank you. Um, so, you know, after our study was published, uh, I will say that many other groups 
uh, performed similar analysis and recapitulated the main findings. So this, this has been shown now uh, across many other institutions. It's been shown in, in operative settings. Uh, it's been shown in COVID. It's been shown in non-COVID. And some groups have even demonstrated that these discrepancies in pulse oximeters may have led very specifically to differences in how care is provided. So that was sort of the first important next step is that like um, this finding was confirmed again and again and again. So now what do we do about it? Well, sort of there's two a sort of major um, sort of thrusts, I think. One is the education of both the public and medical professionals. We've already started to talk about that a bit. So again, like in the last decade or so, we've gotten very used to using a pulse oximeter to make care decisions. So some education, again, about the use and limitations of pulse oximeter, recognizing one, that like this reading may be normal, but it may not always indicate that the patient uh, is, is truly normal. And so it's important to sort of recognize its limitations and not be falsely reassured by a normal pulse oximeter reading. I do think that that has happened to some extent. People are more sort of recognizing the limitations of pulse oximeters and hopefully are adjusting their practice. But another sort of key issue here is that what to do about these devices and what to do about re regulation around these devices and, and what what should manufacturers do about these devices? Well, you know, um, when our study first came out, uh, you know, the manufacturers of pulse oximeter devices really, you know, took they 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 stressed the limitations of their study. You know, they weren't really convinced that like what our study was showing was really going on in practice, and so it's taken a lot of time and a lot of follow-up studies to sort of really sort of convince the field that there's a real problem here. Um, but fortunately, I think, you know, over, over the last couple of years since our study has come out with the other studies following up, showing the same results and, and some discussion among device manufacturers and among regulators, there has been some headwind. Um, I'll, I'll just take a step back and sort of talk about how these devices are approved. So, you know, devices, pulse oximeter devices used in hospitals and clinics are approved um, by the FDA through a regulatory pathway. And, and device manufacturers basically have to demonstrate that these pulse oximeters that they want to market um, as medical devices to hospitals are substantially equivalent. And device manufacturers have to provide data uh, demonstrating uh, these devices are sort of fit for purpose in, in, in medical uh substantially equi uh, equivalent to other devices currently on the market. So uh, that is called the 510K regulatory pathway through the FDA. And when you read sort of guidance from the FDA about like, what does it take uh, to uh, demonstrate that your pulse oximeter that you want to market is sort of safe and effective, you you'd be kind of surprised at how little uh, data is needed to sort of demonstrate its effectiveness. And so one of the sort of the key things that we've been talking a lot about is that uh, these studies used uh, by device manufacturers to sort of demonstrate the effectiveness of their device are frankly quite small. You only need a study of 10 patients and you only need two patients or 15% of your sample to have darkly pigmented skin 
And frankly, you know, that study with that level of patience uh, is just not going to be enough to sort of demonstrate uh, that the device is effective and it works the same across all groups. So sort of one of our sort of big pushes have, have been just update uh, the, the guidance around device approvals to sort of elevate the standard needed to demonstrate that the device is effective. And, you know, I'm hopeful that those standards will be updated. And there has been some movement uh, in this direction. Last fall, the FDA did convene uh, a panel uh, to sort of discuss this and discuss potential new regulations. So I'm hopeful that there will be follow-up and some of these uh, uh, regulatory guidance will get updated. In the meantime, I also hope that, you know, manufacturers sort of recognize the importance of this problem and really sort of work hard um, to make sure their devices are really effective for everyone. And, you know, I, I think there has been some movement in this area about device manufacturers sort of speaking out and saying, yeah, we're okay with sort of more, um, more strict uh, evaluations of our devices through the FDA. And, and we want, we want to support sort of ensuring that these devices are safe, effective for everyone. And then finally, I will say that, um, you know, there has been some stories that I've read on the news about sort of people working on new technologies to really enhance these devices to ensure that they're as, uh, as accurate for everyone. And so I hear stories about um, people working in this area. So I'm optimistic uh, that we, we will ultimately have uh newer versions of pulse oximeter devices that are more accurate for everyone. Yeah, so that's really important. And hopefully those uh, studies will come out and uh, the device manufacturers will work to make sure that our patients uh, get the care that they deserve. Michael, um, as we approach the end of the podcast, uh, what concluding remarks or um, take-home messages do you want for our uh, audience members to have? Yeah, I would just stress um, that um, I'm not telling anyone to throw pulse oximeter away, right? Like, it is an incredible technology. I can't imagine what it was like to practice medicine before pulse oximeters were widely available. And you had to ry- rely solely on physical exam findings uh, or other signs and symptoms of patients with low oxygen. So I think the pulse oximeter continues to be a valuable tool. But like, with every tool that we have, we have to understand its limitations. So uh, in clinical practice, we have to recognize that this tool is very powerful, but it's imperfect. And so we have to understand how to use this tool and how to and, and recognize the situations where maybe we need more information or we shouldn't, shouldn't be falsely reassured. So keep using pulse oximeters, but recognize their limitations. And then I just hope that, uh, you know, um, organizations physician groups, large healthcare systems keep pushing the FDA and device manufacturers to update devices, to develop new devices that um, work more accurately and effectively for everyone. Because, you know, I think there's power in groups, there's power in in large organizations saying, we're going to purchase devices that are proven to be effective for everyone. And so I'm hopeful that uh, physician organizations, large health system organizations sort of continues to demand that because that's what patients need. 
100% agree. Um, we definitely need uh, safe uh, tools, and they need to be accurate um, and well calibrated. And then, as I think we discussed already, uh, the importance of, even though uh, there may be a small percentage, if you magnify it to the population, it could have a really big effect. Um, for our audience, we discussed uh, the article published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. Um, it was entitled Racial Bias in Pulse Oximetry Measurement. And kudos to you and your team, Michael, for doing the study and alerting us to the discrepancies um, and its implications. You take care. All right. Thanks very much. A big thank you to Dr. Schroding, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominique Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.